it's our job to become the most famous Aslan. I want I want you to think of beer when you hear that word instead of a lion named lion in a fantasy world. So this week I'm with Jack Lamb of Aslan Brewery up in Bellingham. It's an organic brewery that's been around for a little bit, and Jack shares with us some of the trials and tribulations of running a organic brewery. He tells us a little bit about how his planets and people first business model has turned out quite nicely for Aslan. This is the first in a series of Bellingham Brewery podcasts. I'm the cycling certified Cicerone, and this is Washington Beer Talk. I'm Jack Lamb. I'm the CEO and founder of Aslan Brewing Company here in Bellingham, Washington. I can't help but notice that your last name's Lamb, yeah. and you went for the lion yeah. Lion-themed brewery. Yeah. <laughs> Probably the third most popular lion there is, but Aslan's behind, uh, what, well, Mufasa. <laughs> I think Gryffindor was a lion. We're out the gate. No connection uh, okay. to C.S. Lewis or any of that stuff. You know, Aslan is a, a Turkish word and uh, for lion. You know, being an organic brewery, we wanted the king of the jungle to represent us. So, um it just made sense to have have a lion do it, you know. And they're and they're fun. They like to sunbathe and relax too. And so you can see it kind of even in our logo that it looks like uh, the lions had a nice pint or a nice meal and is in a good place. So um, fierce, regal, and uh, um, confident. So yeah. I, I was just looking at the stats, and these are from earlier this year that Bellingham has like three of the top 25 biggest breweries in Washington. I think yeah. you're up there with Boundary Bay, and I think Chuckanut was... Uh, uh, it was Colshin that actually... Colshin, yep, that's right. Yeah, and Chuckanut's creeping up now that they have their uh, uh, location in, in Skagit Valley, their second one. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, Washington doesn't have huge breweries. It's kind of this big Morpheus blob of, of middle and small guys, so mm-hmm. um, it's been pretty fun to be one of those. Yeah, you're right there on the... Uh, you know, on a, on a kind of top edge of that. Yeah. Um, so what what does that feel like? So you, how, how old is the brewery? How would you give us a history of it? Yeah, sure. Um, well, it was uh, conceived in 2012 at a local bar, drinking craft beer, uh, thinking that we could probably do this better. And uh, we agreed uh, to go for it. And um, a year later, we got keys to our building. And then eight months of construction, we banged it out and uh, opened our doors in, in May of 2014. So, um, you know, we're four and a half years old. It's been wild. I mean, you know, we started as a, you know, as a brew pub uh, by definition, where most of our beer, if not all of it, was being sold through our on-site restaurant. We were making some damn good food, um, some okay beer <laughs> at the beginning, but it was really kind of our um, triple bottom line business and our connection to the community that helped us get to the point of, you know, sustainability until we could really start working on our beer. Uh, that's where batch 15 comes in. Our most popular beer was our 15th batch of IPA. That's the day that we thought we got it right, you know. So if I have any advice for anyone starting to, starting a brewery, uh, do 14 batches before you open your brewery, you know, because <laughs> you, got, you got some kinks to work out. So uh, fast forward to today. Uh, we now have a second location that's hosting all of our uh, barrel aging product uh, projects. It's just a nicer tap room, uh, 21 and over, that we're able to serve and find glassware, do slow pours, have sour beer. It's funny, you put a Saison or a sour beer up at you know a brew pub and it doesn't sell. 
over there at the other location, I've seen your uh, Disco Lemonade. That's yep. you guys. Absolutely. And uh, that is, I, I, you, know, you can buy that in Seattle at the grocery stores too. Yep. And that's a good one. I like that a lot. That's yeah. my go-to when I'm at the when I'm at the brew pub. I'll drink that one nonstop because it's just like, it's refreshing and delicious and, you know, yeah. lemonade -y. Absolutely. I mean, that's the beer you bring to soccer games at the end and, and you know, it almost feels like you're drinking electrolytes type thing. So, yeah, um, yeah no, it's fun. It's fun. Um, and we're really putting an emphasis on these traditional styles. Um, we're about to take a trip off to Germany, uh, myself and my two partners, and to dive deeper into this world of traditional lagers and, um, you know, um, just this last year, we, we were lucky enough to win uh, gold for our Saison at the World Beer Cup. And um, that's exactly those type of styles that we're interested in. You know, so you're, you're thinking of going the lager route. That's not, that's an uncommon path. It's very, yeah. No, I'm, um, no doubt we'll always make ales. Uh, we love IPA as well. Um, you know, and we make a damn good hazy one. But when it comes to long-term passions, uh, we want to turn, you know, make quality. And, and again, the challenge of making traditional beer. Uh, bringing that back is is really important to us. So um, we're going to be doing a lot, uh, hence the couple locations and our stainless work, our woodwork, and and everything in between. Let's go back a little bit um, to sort of the founding of the business in those earlier days. You mentioned earlier the, I think you said triple bottom line. Mm -hmm. uh, what does that even mean? Yeah, so uh, I'm glad you asked, Andrew. Um, we are... Um, a certified B Corporation, which is uh, really encompasses what a triple bottom line business is all about. So triple bottom line, that means people, planet, and then profit. So you can't make a profit without making sure those two first things are covered. So we're talking people, you're talking your workforce, you're talking the community, um, uh, to uh, the vendors in which you're supporting, the suppliers, and, and so on, uh, the planet side of things is making sure that you're doing everything with as much low impact practices as possible, renewable resources, um, high efficiency units and, um, you know, recycling programs, zero waste programs, et cetera, et cetera. The backbone behind that business model is that, yes, it's more expensive to do these things like make organic beer. Shit, we make four to five times, we pay four to five times the price for our hops and grain than the average guy, and yet I can only charge about 50 cents to a dollar more for a six pack. You know, so this math doesn't really add up. Uh, so it's a lot of money that goes into it, but you know, it's our theory and it's been proven uh, four and a half years later that by doing those methods, you're actually creating a long-term following. You're creating loyalty and you're creating, I don't know, joy. Uh, with your product, which has a longer lasting effect than just making something cool or trendy, right? Yeah, it's fun to kind of stay ahead of the trends and to create something new and to push the boundaries. It's also cool for us to make traditional stuff, but what's number one no matter what we do is that we got to take care of our people, our community, and, and the planet in which we're operating. So that's what Triple Bottom Line is, and, and you know, it, every person that's hired at Aslan is uh, ran through orientation to make them understand that we need to think before we do. Um, and I think it really shows. And I think uh, the average person that walks in sees it on the faces of the people. And the vendors that do deal with us, from the local farmers that we source all of our food ingredients from to, um, of course, the organic farmers for our beer, um, 
they're happy. And we treat them right because um, that's just the way we think it should be done. You already mentioned some of the hardships, um, you know, sourcing uh, grain and hops yeah. and stuff like that. You mentioned the thinner than even the already thin margins on beer mm -hmm. uh, with organic ingredients. What are some of the other challenges you overcame back there? Because talking like making a sustainable brewery, there's lots of, uh, like brewing beer is an energy intensive uh, process. So how does that, what, is there anything you do to make that easier or make that uh, lighter impact? Um, yeah, you know, you got to write contracts. You got to buy in bulk. You've got to get creative. You got to go pick up the peaches yourself in Yakima. You got to do these things that really takes a lot of man hours. It's a lot of sweat equity. Um, but that's one of our strengths is we're owner operators. Um, you know, I'm the CEO and I'm in charge of retail. Frank's our head brewer and he's in charge of manufacturing. And his Bo, his brother Bo is uh, um, our director of sales and distribution. He's in charge of wholesale. That's the company. You know, we don't have any of these guys sitting in Hawaii or any other investors, you know, in some far away city uh, who has interest in our company. So that makes it possible to do a lot of this. Um, building the brewery itself, we were the main construction team. So we saved hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that's a real number uh, that um, we saved by showing up every day at, you know, 7 a.m. and leaving at 7 p.m. every single day for eight months. And uh, we got it done. So, you know, that was one of the moments that you look each other in the eye and you say, are we ready for this? You know, and uh, I wouldn't rather be in business with any other, any couple guys than, than Bo and Frank. So. Let's go back to that story because that sounds really interesting. So it sounds like you guys have some pretty serious backgrounds. Mm -hmm. How did you guys meet? Uh, how did you decide that this was really the, that you had what it took to do this? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 everyone's familiar yeah. with me. We had a couple of pints and thought we yep. should make a brewery that's, story. That's literally, by the way, how, how it happened. So <laughs> that's the, the funny part is like, it was literally done over pints of beer. But no, we met, uh, this is crazy. I met Frank and Bo via the Cuddle House. Uh, yeah, you heard it right. Uh, the Cuddle House. Um, this was a, a house near Western Washington University. Uh, all of us were in the no work, no school club. So we're all educated college grads who wants to stay in Bellingham. We love Bellingham. It's a connection to Mount Baker, the bay, the islands, the forests. I mean, there's everything to your proximity to Seattle and Vancouver. I mean, we have it made here. You know, don't tell the world now. I don't need everyone coming, but that was the reason why the Cuddle House existed. It was kind of a spot for us to gather with like-minded, educated people and, well, be. So we were having fun and we we're hanging out, but we we're also scheming. And we're also trying to figure out what is our next step. And you know, unfortunately, a lot of our friends uh, went uh, uh, and had to go to Seattle to get jobs. And that was that moment that Frank and I, and Frank and I uh, founded Aslan together, uh, when we looked at each other and I said, you know, I was basically born and raised to start a business. You know, my father was an uh, international business consultant. My mom was a CPA and I went to school for economics and psychology and, and leadership. Um, so... Uh, building a team was all I wanted to do. And I wanted to do it in an art or a craft, you know. Growing up in grunge Seattle, it was kind of like, you know, uh, the music scene and the art scene and, and the glass blowing and, and all that stuff really had an impact on me of like, it's fun to create. 
and I didn't want to sell insurance or be an accountant. I could be an accountant of a brewery, though, and that's where when Frank said his dream to be a, you know, a head brewer of a microbrewery, back when you really used the term microbrewery, it all clicked. And I said, you want to start a brewery? And we should. Um, so, you know, step by step from there is manifest destiny. I, I just told Frank his job was to brew the best beer in the world and I would take care of everything else, literally. So I did the business plan, I did everything while Frank brewed every single day down in this little garage that we rented. Uh, sure enough, found a building, got financing uh, through an SBA loan. I spent every penny I had and um, it worked. So it was really no point that really made sense to be doing what we're doing. I had uncles tell me I was crazy. Uh, we had friends, you know, really worried uh, about us, you know. Mm -hmm. Frank was on food stamps, you know, uh, during that time because we had to quit our jobs to focus. So was J.K. Rowling when she wrote Harry Potter. Is that right? Whatever. Yeah. There you go. Or whatever, you know, the yeah, British sure, sure, one is. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, so... So anyway, um, it was very much a day-by-day -day thing. We had no idea what we were in for. In fact, if I knew what I was in for from the beginning, I don't know if I would have done it. Mm -hmm. But I think it was the fact that it was almost this blind ignorance that got us through of showing up every day again. You'd be there at 7, ready to work. Yeah. And, and put on your tool bag and stretch a little, and we're going to do something today. So um, that kind of mentality is still with us today. Um, and Frank is one of the biggest competitors I know in terms of a brewer. He wants to be the best and he doesn't want other people to fail or to be better than other people, but he just has a high, well, a high ceiling. I mean, he thinks that anyone with enough education and enough tries should be able to figure this stuff out and create the best beer in the world. So we're still working on it. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, let me read into the uh, subtext of what you just said. When you know you're saying you're still working on it, are you um, like, are you worried about the quality of the beer or something, or the um, like? Uh, you you made it almost sound like you, you know, you said a second ago that you wouldn't necessarily do it again if you were to try again, or if you had the choice again. What uh, what I'm hearing is maybe it's not slowed down, and you're not feeling quite as stable <laughs> as you want to feel. Is that like I, you know, the onlooker from outside would say, "Oh, they just opened a second location. Business must be booming." Yeah. Um, what's what's your what's it like inside your brain though? Business is booming, and we are stable. We've always been in the black, and we'll continue to be in the black. So right it, it's life's good. Yeah. Not um, many brewers can say that. So right? that's good. Yeah, life's good. Um, but I think it's this, and this is what I'm talking about, about uh, this internal struggle of wanting to be great and wanting to be the greatest version of ourselves every day. Mm -hmm. So when you have that mentality and that Japanese theory of Kaizen, yeah. always improving, mm -hmm. no matter, you can build a perfect building. I mean, when Frank won his first gold medal, he came back, he had around his chest, he had a smile on his face, I had biggest smile on my face and I was like Frank you did it we got to, you know this maybe we should make this one of our flagships you know it's a wit beer is as a, as a, um, a Belgian beer and uh, he looked at me and said I know what I'm gonna do different next time and I think that is what I'm talking about mm -hmm. that we like I said we won gold at the World Beer Cup for the next year and a half I get to say that we have the best saison in the world <laughs> you know uh, but is that true and that's where internally we say no.
because we know we can make a better one. And we know that, of course, there's Saisons out there that didn't enter into this contest that we look up to all the time. You know, go to Brussels and talk to me about what a good Saison or Lambic beer tastes like, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's a different world. So I think it's more of an internal thing that um, this is one of our strengths is that we're never going to stop improving. And we're always going to hold ourselves to a high standard. And, and actually, we don't step back and smell the roses. We just keep showing up every day and saying, we need to do something better. Mm -hmm. You know, when I sit in this tap room or I go up to our brew pub and I'm up there, all I'm seeing <laughs> really is the flaws. I'm wanting to fix and to perfect everything. And that drive really is needed for us to stay competitive and just like scratching at the door. You know, and, and you know, bringing up the... The quality thing about, you know, you have to remind yourself that quality is all that matters. You know, um, I don't care how many likes you get on Instagram or whatnot. And, you know, it's tough for me as someone who has a significant following in social media not to care about that when you see a flop on a Pilsner post. And you're like, what the hell, world? Like, this is the best Pilsner we've ever made. This is fantastic stuff. And all you want to see is a hazy beer and a clever photo. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's what I'm talking about, that right. it is, is much more internal of us just trying to focus on that. Because look back at Yelp in 2014, okay, in those first three months. I mean, people were crucifying us in the street, in our own community. <laughs> the own community that I'm giving a bunch of money and supporting were saying, oh, my God, this is awful. Literally a review saying they would rather drink ketchup than, than our beer. It's funny, the beer they're talking about, it made it to the metal round of GABF. So I also, I also hold some of these critiques, you know, with, with, a, with a grain of salt to me. Uh, yeah. Because uh, you can't always think everyone's opinion is right nor valid. I mean, like I said, if you get a message back from GABF saying it made it to the metal round, but it didn't win a medal, and this guy gave it an F, this, there is some dissonance here. And I think that's where, you know, and we're talking about the Disco Lemonade, actually, where we were one of the first people in Bellingham to brew a sour, you know, uh, well, you know, a, a, a seasonal sour, a sour that was going to be around, you know, and, and really pushed heavily. Um, and it was confusing for people and saying, oh, well, I'm just going to go back to Boundary or Colshin, you know, I'm, I only drink there. And that was kind of funny because in a lot of those reviews, that's what they're talking about. And you're kind of saying there's got to be a bigger picture here. So we've always had this chip on our shoulder ever since that F in the freaking Bellingham Herald. I mean, our, our city's newspaper was an F on our beer. You know, and I remember that moment that night when we left the brewery and we all our heads were down and we said, you know, I still love you guys, and I'll, I'll be here tomorrow, and you'll be here tomorrow, and we'll do this, but it hurt. And so that chip on our shoulder, we'll, we've actually learned to love, and that is what is making us stay edgy. It's what's making us push the boundaries. It's making us spend all our money on traveling to Germany to learn more, you know. 
Um, you got to frame it and put it on the wall somewhere. So, yeah. Absolutely. Bellingham Herald. Just stare at it. Suck it. We're a top 50, 25 <laughs> biggest brewery in Washington, so get out of here. Exactly. So, um, you know, and again, it's not about showing the world that. It's it's a very internal thing. And I think um, so, so long as we maintain passion as our priority and then follow that up with quality, there's nothing we can't accomplish. Mm. So, yeah. Let's switch gears a little bit. I hear the building that we're in right now, the, this is, so this is the depot. Yep. The Union Depot is what it says outside, yep. and it's got a bit of a history tied to it. Oh, what yeah. is that? How does that go? Yeah, so um, Bellingham's actually an old-ass town, uh, and that's what I love. You know, I grew up in a city, and sprawl has always wigged me out. Like, I, I don't want to be in sprawl. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, I'm right there with you. I'm from it, Houston. That was the worst. Yeah, it's yep. just like it doesn't make sense to me. I, I'm a big proponent of density. I'm a proponent of you know, uh, public transit, I don't know, things Sustainability, that. you know, all yeah, that yeah, stuff. Yeah, everything. I'm reading that in you, yeah, yeah, yeah a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, So, um, Bellingham was an easy choice because it has so much history. And there's some cool buildings. And, and actually, at one point in Washington history, there was a moment where, is it Bellingham or is it going to be Seattle? Like, look back at history. And it was like a thing where, are we going to put millions of people in Bellingham or are we going to put millions of people in Seattle? Well, Seattle won because it had a deeper port, basically. Um, and uh, uh, that's history. So um, to get to Seattle, you had to take a stagecoach or, you know, uh, get on a train or something. Well, this was the Union Depot. This is where all the stagecoaches would come and pick people up. Stagecoaches are just like very long limo vans that look weird and broke down all the time. Um, But this is how you'd get to Seattle, Tacoma, Olympia, even Portland. Uh, you can see on the old historic photos of you know these little uh, trains and and the stagecoaches with signs of each of those cities as people are waiting and getting in. So just as we did with our first building, um, which was renovate, you know the most sustainable thing you can do is to renovate a building. The easiest thing you can do is knock it down and build the custom thing that's perfect for your business. Well, this is the challenge that we love presenting ourselves. And when we saw this building, it's it's awesome and it has history. So we let that run with its design. So you're seeing Chesterfield couches in here. You're seeing Persian rugs. You're seeing, you know, you got the old uh, barrels in here and um, wood and wood and wood um, and brick. You know, I mean, this is what this building was. So making that shine was really fun. Um, And again, it it makes it almost easy because it'll design itself. You know, you don't have to try and create a scheme of how you're going to design this new construction when the building has character in itself. So this is one of many historic buildings in Bellingham. Uh, this thing has been around or open to the public in 1922. So, I mean, we're about to celebrate 100 years of operation here. So um, that's that's pretty fun. I'm going to have a hard time portraying how cool this is in a podcast, but it is really just <laughs> the neatest building. And I'm, I'm just, I'm getting to be sitting in it. And well, well, and, and, you know, the brew pub is awesome and it's, you know, all open light and plants everywhere. And it's a family setting, really. I mean, there are times when all seven high chairs are being used, right? So that's a good thing. But as a beer drinker and a beer nerd like myself, I need kind of a different setting to fully appreciate and enjoy beer. Not ticket times and, you know, service is involved in a full service restaurant. It's harder to get the right pours down. It's harder to get the right glassware in, you know, with logistics. So the depot almost came out of 
a necessity for us to drink our beer in the right location, you know. So we really wanted to make this more sophisticated. Again, it's 21 and over only. And the best part is, is we have, you know, eight to 10 guest taps of breweries that I get to source from around the world. I mean, we had everything from Degard to, uh, you know, Little Beast and, um, and, and beyond. I mean, I could, that's been really fun, you know, putting our beer on the exact same tap, on the same level as these breweries that are getting a lot of respect. And I think that was, well, I know that was done purposefully. <laughs> so that people, you know, it's almost like, yeah, I'll have a, I don't know, I'll have a, a you know, Belgian Cezanne. Oh, great. Well, here's a little taster of our Cezanne right next to it. You know, just so you know what mm. we do as well. Clever. I mean, yeah, that's that's how we like to subtly push our product. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's it's been fun, and it, it's working out. A lot more mellow down here at the depot. Yeah. That was, uh, well, I, I haven't, haven't been here when it was open yet, but uh, that is, that's basically what I was sort of sensing. Yeah. And I've never been a huge fan of the brew pub scene, mm -hmm. but what's nice about the you know your brew pub is that you actually have a pretty long bar. Yeah. That if you wanted to, you could just post. Yep. You could just post up over there, which is usually my move. Absolutely. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I, I don't even know my way around your food menu that well over right there. Right um, But let's see. So what kind of decisions went into you know to bring it back to the past a little bit sure. when you decided you were going to open that first brew pub? Instead of opening this yeah. tap room, why did you make that great, decision? Great, great question. That was basically 100% me. Uh, you know, Frank and Bo and and Pat, one of our, our old partners um, who has since moved on. Um, they just they just wanted a brewery. You know, they wanted something like Wander or Structures uh, in town. You know, uh, these awesome operations that are so streamlined. I mean, it's beer. It's beer. Yeah, and, and very maybe, maybe you got a food truck. You know. Um, and, uh, if that, um, and I don't know what was in my head cause I'm insane. Cause it is, <laughs> it's so much more work to, to operate a restaurant, you know, and to keep that, um, uh, I don't know, to keep it blended. You know, it's not just, oh, a brewery doing this and then you have food doing that, you know, trying to find that middle ground of how you keep excitement in both realms and how you keep color and how you keep, uh, you know, the soigne effect of keeping it sexy mm. um, is, is kind of what we say. And, and uh, I just know that, well, people are going to stay a lot longer if they got food. And also, if you, as a Cicerone, you should know this. I mean, you, half of the thing is, not half, but a big part of it is pairing with food. That's right. So I think that, that is often forgotten that um, it is really a party element. Beer is just a way to get drunk, okay? Um, yes, I guarantee you, you'll get drunk if you drink a lot of beer. But, um, you know, we can't forget that beer is meant to be paired with food. And um, uh, having those smells and the whole experience all together and with the right staff that knows what the hell they're talking about, which is huge for us. So all of our uh, servers and bartenders are required to pass the uh, certified beer server by the Cicerone program. Right. So we have 50 of those in-house. So it's it's pretty impressive of, of what we are trying to accomplish. And yet, um, you know, those guys thank me today uh, for putting it in because that's really what made us where we are today. You know, we really did create a community hub and we're able to show 
you know, town, you can have fun with beer. You can raise thousands of dollars for nonprofits with beer. You can raise money for kindergartners with beer. You know, the stigma behind this party liquid, I think, is, uh, is disappearing because of efforts like ours, of being able to create a safe environment for this. And again, when it's down to quality, and when it's down to precision brewing, you know, it's, you don't need many beers to satisfy you. You know, uh, it's, it, it, it takes less to make you happy. Um, so I think that's kind of some of the routes that we go. So, um, yeah, I was really responsible for <laughs> making sure we didn't fuck anything up on the food side or, okay. or lose our, all of our money in the small margins. But um, we are technically no longer a brew pub, technically a microbrewery. Uh, so um, with the majority of you know, beer sales leaving the house and um, actually our biggest territory is King County, so down in Seattle. We just you know, knew that our brand could travel well um, shoot, we've had the same uh, art director, graphic designer, Austin, my friend. I mean, he could, he's maybe technically the oldest employee. He was almost number three, you know. Um, and uh, having that brand consistency and that fun behind your brand has made it really accessible by uh, a market like Seattle. And um, I'd like to think the organic side helps too, but. Uh, I don't know. I don't think people know. care as much as, you don't think <laughs> as, they as care I as do. Much as you think? I think it's going to be a long-term thing, right? Um, look around the world. Sweden and Germany are now demanding pretty much all the products and all the stores to be organic, or at least uh, you know, uh, passing certain criteria that you might as well be a, an organic farm, for example. Um, you know, I think that's a trend that is only going to expand, and we're just happy to be ahead of it. And you know. Um, having bottle-stable products and bottle-conditioned beer that can go around the world is really going to be nice, being able to have an organic product to not hold us back from any of those kind of opportunities as well. So, um, yeah, the organic things, every year, man, I struggle with it. Yeah. Every year I have this moment of, why the hell are we doing this? I, if I just sourced conventional hops, I'd save $250,000. It would just go into my pocket. Uh, and that's just hops. You know, we're not talking malt. And that's even more. So, um, you know, can you argue that that two hundred fifty thousand is is made up for in you know organic loyalty? I don't think so. Tough call. Yeah, I, I don't think so. But does it help? Absolutely. And does it maybe ensure a twenty year plan is going to work? I do think so. Hmm. I think those are the differentiators that you know you get. Let's warp twenty years from now and see who's really doing well and who is just kind of stuck doing what they did in 2018 or just don't exist. Mm -hmm. So um, those are the small things that are not small, uh, but um, are physically small in the can. It's about smaller than a penny. Uh, and yet um, I know that we're going to be standing behind forever. Okay. One of those, one of a thought that I had was sustainability and organic are terms that people throw around together a lot, but yeah. in my mind, they're not actually the same thing. One of them, like organic is to me almost, you know, maybe, maybe speaking to your, uh, I don't know, skeptical feelings about it, it is more of a marketing term. Mm -hmm. It's more of a, 
it, it's like, hey, look, we grew the same thing but with a lot more effort and a lot more cost, and we're passing it on to you. I, yeah, I hope yeah. you're happy. <laughs> yeah. uh, and you know, people will argue that it's you know that's not the case, but I still walk by PCC and see how much smaller their bell peppers are. Like, I, I don't, you know. I, yeah, it doesn't really add up to you. Yeah, it doesn't impress me. Sustainability is important, though. That's different. That's the opposite, almost, of organic, right? Mm -hmm. That is really making sure that you're, like, you know, you keep your energy costs, you know, you keep your energy down, it keeps your energy costs down, yep. and it keeps your impact on the planet yep. down. I ride my bike everywhere because I don't own a car. Yeah, I mean, the truth, the truth, is this business sustainable just means, is it going to last? Yeah. So you need costs to be down. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's literally the biggest part of sustainability is making sure that you can pay your bills and you're paying yourself. Mm -hmm. um, so... I would agree um, because I struggle with the organic certification requirements, which is I can't use mint from my garden that I've had for four years and have never put a single chemical in in any of our beer. I can't uh, find a family that has been doing it right for 100 years in Skagit Valley, let's just say, and I've met this family farm who actually do everything that needs to be done to be technically certified organic, they just don't want to pay the fee. In fact, they're a little bitter. They're upset about it. They're like, I've been doing this this way without using crazy pesticides and herbicides and going above and beyond for years. And yet now you're wanting me to give you a big chunk of my sales just so I can say it's organic? Hell no. So there is some irony in this whole thing that like, it could be as sustainable, you know, as possible. It could be a farm across the street that does it right, that does every, uses the exact same everything, as salmon safe as everything, but they're not certified, so I can't use them. It's a little absurd, isn't it? Yeah. I can't go foraging in the middle of Mount Baker Wilderness for chanterelles and put that in a beer because it's not organic. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know, really? Yeah. Look me in the face and tell me that this is really not organic. You know, so... You know, that being said, I get it. If you put those same chanterelles in a truck bed that was just sprayed with ammonia, you know, or, you know, some nasty chemical or whatever, and it parts off into your beer, like, I get the theory. But this is why, for example, our kitchen isn't organic. Our kitchen does source organic when we can, but actually the order of operations for our kitchen food is local, then organic, you know. Uh, and um, I think that or our operations is where you see some of these foraging breweries that I really respect um, because they're buying organic malt, but they're just not certifying it organic because they know when they go foraging, they can't get that through the system. So there are a lot of people that are doing it right. And that's why I think transparency is huge for businesses and why we do need to be telling our stories so consumers can really make that decision on their own. I just know that we were going to be making so much of, you know, our plan was to, you know, serve beer from Vancouver, BC to Portland, Oregon. That's a lot of beer. And um, it'd be a lot easier for people to realize your story if there's just this little, tiny little circle logo that sits there and assures people that, again, there's a reason why this is $2 more than the other six-pack right next to it. So there has to be some balance that I agree, um, that it's almost absurd that they make us spend so much for a product that is, you know, maybe argued to only be, you know, slightly better, even for everything.
Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, that's what I deal with. Yeah. You know, I find these people and the first question I have to ask them, is it certified organic before, you know, it's like they, they reach out, we have these strawberries, they're so beautiful and we love Aslan. So we want you guys to get it first. My reply has to be, okay, before I even talk more, is it organic? Oh no. Well, I appreciate you. You know, it's just like this, Ugh, what a shame. Yeah. So, um, down to hops, you know, we have probably like 11 varieties to choose from <laughs> rather than 111 or whatever, you know, the hop mafia gets to choose from. Um, and so that also challenges us to make, how do you make 60 different beers a year like we do with the limited ingredients? And that's where kind of, again, this chip on our shoulder of how we overcome and, and how we're going to, you know, improve um, happens. So, yeah. Got two threads I want to run down. Okay. Uh, you just mentioned the hot mafia. Yeah. And I also, but before we go into that one, because I think I know where that's going, uh, I want to talk more about what you you mentioned the twenty year plan mm -hmm. and how you're you know hoping that your brewery will you know still be around and still thriving at that time. How do you sort of see? Well, first of all, your own brewery's growth in that time, but also the development of the industry in general at that time. I have no idea. Oh man, twenty years is. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Really. What about the what about Aslan's <laughs> five-year plan then? Okay, the five-year plan. Um, our five-year plan really is to um, find out a way to increase quality uh, to the end consumer. That's all it comes down to. Our five-year plan is to dive into lagers and to traditional styles and to perfect high-precision beer, um, not just to follow trends and to go about that. Our goal is to take beer out of distributors' hands and find ways to directly connect and to serve uh, in, uh, markets, uh, you know, whether that's having a satellite location in Seattle um, so we can, you know, can a beer at 7 a.m., drive it to Seattle and have a can release at the exact same time in Bellingham in Seattle with beer that was canned that day. Um, that's fresh, you know. I don't care if, you know, it's an hour and a half drive, it's, it's fresh. Um, and uh, those dreams are attainable. Um, and, you know, I also don't want to take over the world. We made a commitment to each other. You know, there was a moment where you had to decide how big are you going to get, you know, and this was in 2015 when that moment of everyone getting production facilities. And then in 2018 when... I think it's 20 to 30% of them shutting them down those production facilities or having to, or at least having to um, outsource a lot of their production, you know, by doing contract brewing and such. So we did a kind of a, a I don't know, a soulful beer tour down the uh, uh, I-5 down Oregon and stopped at all the big breweries from Deschutes to Ninkasi to even 10 barrel and good life. And we all looked at each other after that and said, hell no, we're going to get bigger than, you know, 10, 12,000 barrels. Mm -hmm. You honestly see the soul leave these people. You see the smiles leave the bigger places you go. You see operations that they press a button and hops go in. They're literally brewers not even touching ingredients anymore. And that makes no sense to me. Where's the craft in that? Where is this handmade product? Where's the story? You know, 
um, intimacy. You know, it's, it's tough. So I'd rather be on the route of a boutique brewery trying to find and create little locations and little, um, you know, from our bottle projects to our can projects to, you know, limited releases, you know, uh, making it so that you got to be here to get it if you want it. You know, um, that's really what I'm looking forward to. Um, nothing will change in our triple bottom line. Nothing's going to, you know, if anything, we'll find ways to continue to add solar or, you know, um, find uh, better ways to be zero waste or low impact and whatnot. Uh, but really, it's kind of finding and perfecting. So I don't think I need to build anymore. Again, I think retail outlets may be the extent of it, almost just so we can take beer out of distributors' hands. Because do you know what our top three accounts are in King County? Tell me. Trader Joe's, Trader Joe's, and Trader Joe's. Do you know what Trader Joe's does? They, they buy directly from you. Well, no, they don't. They they buy from distributors who uh. have maybe kept it warm, and they put it right in uh, the floor of their 60-degree to 70-degree, you know, storefront. This makes no sense. This is total disrespect of our product. It, you know, our product is dying immediately when it hits there. You know, so cold storage, finding the right bottle shops, finding the right accounts. Unfortunately, when you give to a distributor, you can't tell them where to sell the beer. You can't say, oh, you can't sell to Trader Joe's anymore. Mm -hmm. Actually, that we can't do that. Uh, but we can continue to encourage is education. We can set limits of what these stores can have so that, uh, for example, you can't order more than 50 cases at a time because the other 50 are just going to sit in the back, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so those are the efforts that we are trying to do in the next five years. Ensure quality gets to our end consumer because mm -hmm. we can, you know, it's almost like, you know, we have a full quality control lab here, full-time scientists doing dissolved oxygen VDK readings on every single part of every single one of our beers. And all we can do is make sure that we have the lowest amount of dissolved oxygen in those cans before it gets in their truck because that's all control we have. So um, I think the only growth and the only expansion I'm interested in doing is creating those kind of outlets where we can directly ship to a location and feature you know, exclusive products and give markets, frankly, a variety that they deserve. When I guessed that Trader Joe's was buying directly from you, I knew before I said it that I was wrong. Yeah. Because that's not even <laughs> I wish. Legal. That'd, be, that'd be awesome. Uh, how much you, what do you know, what do you want to tell me about the, like, the distributor-brewery relationship? Because yep. it sounds sour, and I know that it usually is. Like yeah. the, sound, the, the distributor is kind of always the, kind of the devil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they buy and they ruin beers. Oh, and man, yeah. It's in their warehouse. It's easy to put the blame on distributors, right? Because mm -hmm. you gave them the best product you could and then something fucked up or the cans exploded six months later and you're wondering how the hell they let a beer six months stay on the shelf at this account. Yes, there are those issues, but quite honestly, we are stoked with our distributors. Um, we're with Northwest Beverages in most of Washington, Sound Beverage up here, um, and uh, it's... It's a great relationship because they get it. Mm. We short every single one of their orders. You know, uh, they'll order, you know, 800, 1,200 cases, and we'll give them 80%. Because do you know what? We already know what would happen if we fulfilled all those orders because there'd just be products sitting there. We'd rather give you more frequent, fresh orders than 
front load orders and have you sit and say, oh, we're good next week. That makes no sense to us if we're canning batch 15 literally every week. You know, we might as well be sending a new batch every week with you. It just makes sense. So making sure that you work with distributors and have them understand your goals is the most important part. And I think that's where we have been very transparent and we have put our foot down and saying, sorry, we can't do this or we can't do that. And frankly, if you're that transparent with a distributor, they appreciate it. You know, they'd rather have you give them a little less, actually, because they're going to sell out of it, you know, um, and that feels good. So um, it's just more that, you know, we could have boosted and created a production facility. Shit, I just, I've spent $8,000 designing that production facility down in Fairhaven in South Bellingham. Uh, and decided not to pull the trigger. It'd be 40,000 barrels a year. I'd need to distribute to at least 12 states. And that would be an absolute disaster. Margins are so crazy when you give it to a distributor and give it away. And that's where I need, you know, I'm talking to everyone listening right now. Understand that high-priced beer, not much is going back to the brewery on the average shelf that you see. Um, you know, we get the honor of directly distributing to the city of Bellingham, and that's about it. Um, and those margins are fine. Those margins are good. But, um, um, you know, the distributor game is tough because volume is king. And that's where I've found through statistics that, you know, this 10,000, 12,000 barrels a year is going to be a pretty sweet point because your labor will be in check as a small or mid-sized brewery. Um, uh, you won't have to be putting too much of that volume into the low margins, and yet you can have a reach that's significant enough to span an entire state. So that's the sweet number that I'm finding, that you're finding these, like, you know, breweries that are even called boutique, and they're making 12,000 barrels a year. They're making 20,000 barrels a year. But it's the way in which they're doing it that I think is very key. Don't be a sellout, you know. We did put our foot down about when we saw our beer in Target, for example. Mm -hmm. There's no way that they're treating that correctly. And when we went and checked, because, you know, you could give them the benefit of the doubt, we're absolutely right. It was all being warm stored and, you know, and whatnot. Uh, Costco wanted our hazy stuff. Hell no. You warm store. Well, we'll give you our light lager. That thing's got a nine-month shelf life and, you know, it's clean and clear and our dissolved oxygen is super low, so go for it. You know, that beer is going to be stable. But it's those kind of decisions you have to have with distributors because, again, you don't really have control over where that beer ends up. I was just thinking about that, you know, Costco warm storage and stuff. I think that Costco has sort of been like the kiss of death for a few beers mm -hmm. that I've, you know, had. I've had I've had a few beers that have shown up in there like they're multi-packs, you know, they're... Yeah, yeah, packs yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. The you know, you, variety you, pack. You go to buy them and they're you know, excited to see this, you're, you're excited to see this like ostensibly craft beer uh, at, at Costco and then you buy it and it doesn't taste good. And you're like, what? I, you know, I thought uh, the image of some breweries in my mind is of their Costco multi-pack and it's not good. No. And yeah, that's got to be completely why. Yep. Yeah, that's absolutely, absolutely right. And it's not that I'm trying to create a line out my door on can releases. That's mm. really satisfying. Yeah. That's gonna. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, and I get that like, that's awesome. But um, I don't call it a failure if people aren't lining up at the door when it's released, you know. Um, 
but that being said, I think the idea of availability is very much so in the consumer's mind and makes something special or not. You know, I'd like to think that the, the label on the can plus the environment you're sitting in plus how you obtained that can contributes to how that beer is going to taste. Actually, I know that's true. Um, there's been, I stand by that. Yep, and uh, do a study on the top-rated beers and exclusivity. And I guarantee there's a direct relation between, oh, you know, there's only 20 cases of this beer. It was a five-star, best beer I've ever had. Well, no one can say anything because you can't taste it again, you know. Um, it, it just so happens that, uh, frankly, the smaller release, usually the higher uh, a rating on something so wines and playing that game for centuries oh man yeah yeah oh my god yeah so um i was gonna ask how big is your uh brew house like how big per batch do you yeah uh well we started with a 15 barrel system and outgrew that what in a year and a half uh or two years and we upgraded to a 30 barrel brewery four vessel system uh so we're able to do really precise brews um awesome step mashes and and awesome uh um, you know, ability to transfer back into the uh, louder ton for things like uh, fresh hops and whatnot, so you're not just creating a mess. Um, so we've been, uh, Frank was really creative in that uh, uh, design of our brew house. 30 barrels, our largest tanks, we got a couple hundred 20 barrels outside, outdoor fermenters with six inches of insulation, I mean, huge. Um, but yeah, we got a few 60s, uh, a few 30s, um, 115. Uh, we do half batches of, of, you know, kind of, I don't know, more delicate things. Right. You make an alt beer and no one really wants to buy it. It could be the best beer in the world, but yeah. it's an alt beer. Yeah. Right? So like, I don't find myself so buying just, many alt beers. No, just, so just make 15 barrels of it. You know, so we'll do half batches every once in a while. Okay. Yep. Um, I want to continue on that line and talk about the stuff we have here. But first, I want to, before I forget about it, the Hot Mafia comments. Yeah, that okay, you made yeah. Earlier. So, yeah, yeah. Um, Tell me about the Hot Mafia. Who's the Hot Mafia? What does that even mean? Oh, man. Well, I don't even know the Hot Mafia because I've never had a favor from them, if we want to keep on that theme. Um, uh, hot Mafia is a hop union. Um, they get to decide the fates of breweries around the world. You know, 75 plus percent of the world's uh, hops are being made in... Uh, in Yakima Valley, and when you have one uh, major uh, hop distributor kind of coordinating that madness, um, you know, they get says over who gets signed what contracts, you know, and it is almost like a mafia. Oh, you want to rub my back? Okay, well, I'll, I'll sweeten your contract. Okay, well, we need this out of you, or how about this price, you know? Um, so they can change things, and it's kind of evil. Um, but again, I I know nothing about it because we buy organic, so we buy out all the small guys, you know, and that's been really fun. I mean, I say small guys, it's it's still a lot of the same farms, but they have organic plots. Mm. Um, so Roy Farms has been in in operation for 111 years now. Um, you know, they make a lot of the hops for the hop union, and uh, um, well, they make a lot of our organic hops too. Uh, Crosby down in Oregon, they make our organic hops. But we have to get creative in where we source them. There's a lot of organic hops being sourced in Germany, uh, England, and uh, um, 
and uh, Europe in general uh, to New Zealand hops that we get, um, you know, whether it's YET or Motueka hops. Um, so, you know, I'm happy I'm not part of the hop mafia, but I hear, uh, you know, they can just kind of add a swipe of the wand, take away Amarillo from you for the rest of the year or something like that. And really, you can't do anything about it because the contracts you sign, let them do that. Wow. Uh, the contracts we sign are different. Um, okay. And so, so yeah, um, that's all I got to say about that. I'm just happy I'm not a part of it, though. It'd be nice to have, you know, what, six times the variety to choose from. <laughs> That'd be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so I was going to ask about these barrels. Yep. Are these full of stuff? All of these barrels are full of stuff. Yes, they're full of beer. Um, you know, mostly wine barrels is, is our collection. I think we have about 100 barrels, um, you know, that uh, uh, currently have beer in them. Uh, again, mostly wine barrels. We have a lot of whiskey barrels from Woodland Whiskey, Woodenville Whiskey, um, and then uh, uh, some Kentucky uh, bourbon barrels as well. Everything is in these. Uh, you know, Frank uh, makes a base beer called Ozzy. Uh, it's just a very simple, pale, uh, unfiltered beer that we put in a lot of these barrels as our base for um, a lot of our Brett projects. Um, so most of these are, you know, Britannomyces heavy, uh, some of which, you know, we spike with some lacto and, and they are sours. Some are mixed and uh, um, it's been a wild journey. Um, you know, the most recent bottles we released have been huge successes. Blueberry Dojo was huge and that's been fun because we sourced organic blueberries uh, from um, a Bow Hill uh, right down the road and uh, made an awesome purple pink uh, beverage that you know talk about rate beer has been our highest uh, rated beer in history so far so um, again you know the reassurance that we don't have to lean on hazy IPAs to survive is such a good feeling that we have these barrels to you know for the next years just sitting right in front of us uh, to be able to bottle uh, awesome uh, projects and when we bottle condition them, you know, as we do with all of our all of our bottle projects, we also know that if it doesn't sell for two years, great, it might even be better, you know. And so that's that's another thing about inventory that makes me a little you know, sleep better at night, you know. Uh, the beer we won gold medal for, we had 200 cases of when we won gold medal, and now you know it's down to about 50. So um, it's pretty fun to know that you know. Maybe we should stop selling that, hold it for a year, release 10, hold it for another year, release 10, you know, and say that this was that, you know, big win of ours. So, um, yeah. What, how about we change gears a little bit, talk a little bit more about the, uh, the, not the non-brewery Jack Lamb. Mm -hmm. What's, what's the rest of your life look like? Well, and I wish I had brought this up earlier, just in case someone still isn't listening, but uh, we, I'm a biker. I'm a biker. I, I bike to work every day. Um, I'm part of a bike gang called the Wet Boys uh, that we meet every Monday night at 7 p.m. We are all on fixed, uh, or not fixed gear, we're on rigid bikes, so no suspension, and we um, are in cahoots with the Hub Community Bike Shop, and they build us these awesome Frankenstein bikes out of old frames, old, you know, steel uh, 
uh, uh, old mountain bikes and you put fat tires and you, you know you have so much fun. Um, so we go adventure and we go off piste and just crash and have so much fun and drink beer and and uh, that's Bellingham. Uh, yeah. It's a lot of getting groups of people together and having fun. Um, I love playing soccer. I love skiing. Uh, that's a big reason why we're here. Why we're all here is the mountain. Uh, every winter is that's our life. Um, so skiing, snowboard is huge. Hiking, biking, outdoors, camping. That's the lifestyle that um, a Bellinghamster, if you will. Bellinghamster. Uh, <laughs> that's the lifestyle that we live um, and that we appreciate. You know, we put we shop at the co-op. We put organic produce in our body. We treat our bodies right. You know, Bellingham is one of the least obese cities in the world, or world, in the nation. Yeah. Sorry, everybody. Um, uh, and it also has uh, the highest bike mechanics per capita uh, out of any city, uh, at least in Washington State. Saw that in the Seattle Times the other week. So that was that was pretty fun. So that's a good one. That's kind of me in a nutshell. It's like being a kid in Bellingham. Uh, you can continue to have that kind of childish fun where you hop on a bike, go jump in a lake, and go jump in another lake, and then go jump in the bay. You know, um, you can ski one day and have a, a beachside bonfire uh, when you get home. Um, it's it's an, a, an adventurer's paradise, and it's clean, it's progressive, and that's what I do. Right on. Yeah. That's what you said in your emails, bikes and beer life. Yeah, so it I is. I like it. I'm right there with uh, you. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll invite you on a wet boys trip. Oh, my God. Time. That'd be fun. It's hilarious. That'd be great. And we know the name's silly, but we got to rock it. It's I'd... been going, man. They've been meeting, wet boys have been meeting for eight, ten years now. Every Every Monday. Wow. It's insane. <laughs> yeah. And we always do the, the ski to sea race where we uh, uh, do a car-free ski to sea. You know, we bike to the top of Mount Baker and... Uh, do the whole race via bike down. So you got to do the, the run leg, then the snowboard leg, even the kayak. Like we towed the canoe with our bikes and everything. Oh so, my God, dude. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty fun. That's no, dope. This, this is a biking town. And I guess there's a reason we put both of our locations on uh, major bike routes, mm -hmm. you know, is because, you know, and I build a lot of bike racks for these people. So we can all, all get here safely and absolutely. Hang out. We got to get more of that personality down in uh, down in Seattle, where they're just every brewery I go to. There's no bike rack. There's some good bike yeah, routes. Yeah. There's like good bike trails, sure. but those breweries don't have bike racks out front. Yeah, it's, I'm, it's I'm tough. finding a fence, a stop sign, a tie to. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Okay, whatever. All right, here we go. Bring the bungee cord, because otherwise I'm not getting locked yeah. up anywhere. Yeah. No, it's fun. Life's good up here. Yeah. Right on. I'm gonna have to show this to the uh, to the Misserone and see if I can okay. move to Bellingham. <laughs> Love it. I'm going to take a quick break from the show to share some exciting news. I, the cycling certified Cicerone, officially own a brewery. Well, part of one, I guess. I am one of the member owners of Flying Bike Cooperative Brewery. If you ever wanted to own part of a brewery yourself, then Flying Bike is the place to go. It's a cooperative brewery, which means it's owned by the members. Almost more excitingly, though, I was just appointed to their board of directors. So if you want to have a delicious beer and you're ever in the Greenwood neighborhood of Seattle, then swing by and tell them that the cycling certified Cicerone sent you. It won't get you anything, but it'll make me feel good. Washington Beer Talk is also brought to you by Craft Beer of the Month. If you want to get a crate of tasty beer sent to your house or sent to someone else as a gift, 
then check out cyclingcicerone.com slash beer club. That'll send you straight to their website via my affiliate link. Okay, let's see. What are the three biggest influence breweries to you? You know, when you started the brewery or now sure. that you're growing, you know. Sure, I'll your... kind of space them out. Um, I think the number one was Hopworks Urban Brewery mm. uh, down in Portland. Um, again, uh, it was almost uh, that just <laughs> everything they did made sense to me. Making organic beer, being a B Corp. Uh, you know, in New Belgium, I guess I'll tag on to that, uh, being one of the coolest B Corps I know of and getting to know their sustainability program is the most impressive thing ever. Employee owned. I mean, this whole thing is, they go above and beyond. I mean, they just rock. So, you know, in terms of sustainability, I would say Hopworks and, uh, and New Belgium are, are two huge ones. Uh, in terms of beer quality, shoot, Chuckanut, Chuckanut Brewery. I mean, that Pilsner, that lager program is unreal uh we just did a brewer's retreat on on friday and stopped at uh uh chuckanut south and happened to run into will kemper there uh and it is just every time that we talk to that guy is such a breath of fresh air and you learn way too much <laughs> you know you're writing stuff down and you know getting your mind blown by who is the godfather of american lager beer you know German style. Um, uh, so yeah, Chuckin' Up Brewery is a huge one. Um, and then, oh man, I don't know. I'd have to just go overseas, you know, and into the Cantillon um, side of the world. Um, Frank, you know, was lucky enough to go to Brussels uh, uh, last spring and his story of, of Cantillon and these Lambic breweries, and I'll just say Cantillon as a representative representative of these Lambic breweries out there. They just do things because that's their passion. There is no social media. There is no advertising. There is no schemes. There is no marketing. There, it's what they've been doing, and that is what they do. It's their passion. And it's hard to explain, but it's that. That's it. It's that if you're going to do anything in life, do it because you want to do it. Do it because you think that's the right way it should be done and continue to challenge yourself to do it better. Now, I don't know if they're challenging themselves to change anything, but I think they're more on the side of, you know, um, they don't have to. Even if it is a funky product, that's what it's supposed to be. This is the yeast in the air. This is, the, this is what you get. This is our brewery, you know, and I think that that kind of... Um, that kind of mentality and mindset is the difference between American breweries and these old traditional breweries, which is why we want to bring some of that passion back, you know, to loop this back into some of the first things I said, is you have to look at that. You have to understand that they've been around for some over 100 years, and they're, you know, they're still alive. In fact, they're just gaining respect as they go. So, um, so yeah, I think that would kind of cover our, our passions, you know. I wonder what that secret sauce is that takes a brewery from, you know, what you were just saying that no advertising, no marketing, none of this, all, all passion, just beer, 100-year-old thing. I wonder what the secret sauce is that changes one of an American craft brewery, which you, like, 
you can't argue has a similar amount of passion. It's not like we're not passionate about right. the beer we exactly. brew. Exactly. You're right. So what you know, what's that what's that extra step? And I think I might just be I don't know, some ephemeral. Not giving quality. a fuck. Yeah, like I don't know. I think I think it's a lot of this um, you know, and this is the psychology major in me coming out. I think it's a lot of insecurities of our American society. Hmm. And if you want to get real deep, I think it's this Go whole on. thing about, you know, being stuck to your phone and having this avatar personality that needs to get clicks and likes and you're judging your success off of those factors when those statistics don't mean anything to someone who's just doing what they want to do, right? Um, of course, you need your business to succeed and to stay open. You don't get to exist unless you do that. So um, I do understand that, say, bringing that kind of I don't give a fuck mentality and follow passion and don't really market or whatever into America may be nigh on impossible. But I don't think it's impossible. And in fact, I'm watching some of these breweries open up like Garden Path, for example. If you have a chance to get down to Garden Path, go see that. The dude doesn't have a single bit of stainless in the whole building. And the way he talks about beer, and he used to, he's formerly, uh, his name's Ron Extract, formerly of, of uh, um, Jester King uh, in Texas. Right. Um, you know, very uh, well-regarded brewery, of course. Um, oh, I've been there. It's a cool said, spot. Yeah. Uh, some, to some, the best brewery in the world. Um, is uh, really, you see that passion and mentality. And you understand that he has designed his overhead and his operations around the fact that he doesn't need to be out there on the streets having to push his product and be a salesman. He gets to be a brewer. Actually, he gets to be a fermentation uh, scientist. <laughs> That's what he is. He doesn't even brew beer. He takes wort and turns it into magic. You know. So um, I think it's possible, but I, I don't. I, I think it's just a, an element of America <laughs> that we are seeing, that we love to bastardize and ruin certain things. We also like to, you know, create rock and roll and, you know, uh, uh, start new revolutions, you know. I mean, and, and so that's, that's where it's fun and, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, let's just take hazy IPAs, you know, it's like everyone has something to say about it, but I was happy it happened, you know, as, you know, but with the death of any trend is when everyone starts doing it, right? And, um, well, everyone has made a hazy IPA now. Yep. And uh, whether you drink it or not, it's, it's happening, but I think that that is the reaction of the exact opposite of what I'm talking about. I mean, I guess if, if it is your passion and your duty in life to make hazy IPA, then so be it. Um, and, you know, I very well may meet someone someday that that is literally what, grind, like, turns the clock in their head. Um, but I think that there's more a molecular level, and that's what I'm talking about on this, you know, these breweries in Brussels and Germany that take it on more of a step-by-step -step level rather than just what the finished product is. It's everything has a purpose. Every step has a meaning to it. And... That is the beauty of brewing beer. I hope you find that answer on your trip. I know. I'm so excited. I'm going to be in flying into Munich, going to Bamberg, and I may never come back. That's the good stuff, dude. Yeah, yeah. I did Munich last year for Oktoberfest. Sweet. It was just the, awesome. It was dope. It, was wasn't it? What I was, it wasn't what I expected. It 
what, but it was a lot of fun. It's so cool. Awesome. Yeah, yeah I can't wait. Um, okay, let's see. Two more questions. Three okay. more questions, then we're done. Okay. Lightning round style. Um, okay. Lightning. We already talked about your like inspirational breweries. Um, what about the inspirational beer? So, what was the num- like maybe the number one beer you've ever had? The first beer that comes to mind when I ask this question. Obviously, there's no way to answer what your favorite beer is. Sure. But, you know, what's the beer that turned you into the man you are today? Um, I would say New Belgium's La Folie. Um, that was like my board game beer in 2011 or 2010. Uh, 2011, yeah. 2011. Um, you know, we'd play Settlers of Catan and we'd always, someone would bring a, you know, you'd go to Elizabeth Station down the street, our bottle shop, and you'd get the nicest bottle you can find. And I just always reached for that. That was like kind of the first real sour I really loved. Um, and it was dark and it was funky and expensive. And even that tickled my fancy. I mean, the fact that I'm spending $30 on, on a bottle, and I'm like, I don't know, but that's the thing that like I knew this had to have time, and, and once I fully understood the story behind it, that was huge. I think taking a half step back to when I was living in Prague, it would be Pilsner or Kells Pilsner. That has such a distinct flavor and taste to it that I don't think it'll ever really win a Pilsner award, because it's not really too much styles, you know, it is its own world. And I think that that in itself, again, is another testament to not being frustrated for not winning awards or to not even have beers that can go into any of these items. I mean, we make a Pacific ale. What the hell? Like, what, what is this? You know, yeah. it could be an Australian pale ale. It could be a, you know, a wheat forward, you know, pale ale. I don't know. Like, what is this beer? Um, so I would say, uh, those, and then, um, um, again, I'll, I'll just say if, you know, I have this one always ready in my bank of someone saying, if you were on a stranded Island and had one beer to drink the rest of your life, what beer would that be? It would be Chuckanut Kolsch. Chuckanut Kolsch. Yep. I could drink that forever. Again and again. What about... Frank's best beer. What's your favorite one brewed by you guys here on Aslan? Ooh, great question. Um, I think his the best IPA he's ever brewed was the um, it was the Roy Farms Fresh Hop. Uh, it was all Centennial. Um, drove directly via me uh, from the farm, and it was just it was just on point. So good. He's been so good at getting those hops not muddled in in these hazy beers so that that's my favorite hazy he's made um i would say in terms of bottles uh francis farmer is my favorite um that's that's our uh, gold medal saison um and it wasn't just because of that it's just so soft uh notes of stone fruit and and um it's less abrasive than so many of these uh kind of mixed fermentation saisons that i'm having that you know, often rip your tongue off or uh, leave you kind of smacking your tongue, you know. Um, And then, uh, you know, the American Stout. I think, you know, Stouts are often overlooked, but that's actually our most award-winning beer. And um, uh, it's a banger. I think it's got perfect bitterness to it, Um, you know, enough heat to keep you warm in the winter, and yet... It's uh, clean, you know. 
it's it's not a lot of you know off flavors going on so we're we're pretty psyched i'm pretty lucky to have access <laughs> to beers from lagers to saisons to stouts to ipas to sour beers to ginger rye ale which we just changed today uh we decided not to um mechanically filter it in order to preserve some of this uh uh ginger notes and and everything and it just is tasting like a million bucks right now so um a lot of fun stuff last question okay mary bang kill played this game before hopworks new belgium chuck and Ed. which one would you marry which one would you bang oh which one man you kill? uh okay you said hopworks new belgium chuck and Ed. oh man Christian's going to hate me. I would kill Hopworks. <laughs> Christian, sorry, I love you. It's just because I'd really want to bang uh, uh, New Belgium and marry Chuckanut, I think. <laughs> Chuckanut's more my speed. You know, it's a cute little funky Chuckanut lives in town. Yeah, they're in town. They She wouldn't have to move far if she married No, nah, it's all good. <laughs> you know, New Belgium's got a lot of money, and I'm sure it'd be like a hoot. We'd have a great night, and it'd be a lot of fun and excitement and romance. And then, I don't know. I might as well kill the, the other B Corp organic brewery, right? <laughs> Sorry, Christian. Go. I love you. <laughs> uh, but, uh, um yeah, that's an awesome question. I think I answered it right. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Christian. Yeah, sorry. It's been a pleasure. How about we go grab a beer? Yeah, let's do it. That was Jack Lamb, co-founder of Aslan Brewery. I can't wait to come back and have some more disco lemonade. Thanks a bunch, Jack. Thanks for listening to Washington Beer Talk. If you like what you heard, then you can find other episodes of the podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play. Don't forget to like, leave a review, and share with your friends. 